0: with you dr comfort would you come please sir thank you pastor let's stand please everybody's standing I'm gonna ask all the children fourth grade on down to four years old to follow my wife and brother bill what door are you going out, honey okay the door on my right at the back under the balcony all the children Uh, from fourth grade on down to four years old. As you're standing, take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. By the way, I told Alton today, I said, when you're here, I'm your boss. I said, when we're at college, you're my boss. And uh, so every time I go into chapel, I say, Allison, what do you want me to do today? And uh, I, I, I just like to go to church and blend in the wall. I don't care if anybody knows I'm there. I just want God to speak to my heart. I hope you'll come with a prayer that uh, Brother Beal preached about, <clears throat> revive my uh, heart in the midst of years, in the midst of years, Uh, Make known thy joy. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, please. Verses 24 through 27. It says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now verse 26 is the one I want to point out tonight. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Thank you very much, you may be seated. By the way, this morning I did not see anybody pastor playing with their phone while I was preaching. That was encouraging. Uh, There are two places I don't take my phone to. I don't take it to church and I don't take it to the golf course. All right, Hebrews chapter 11. History tells us that the logical successor to the Pharaoh of Egypt would have been his son. In the event that Pharaoh did not have a son, his daughter's son would be the next Pharaoh of the land. Now, most of you are aware how Moses became Pharaoh's daughter's son. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter was down by the river of Egypt taking her daily bath. She didn't take a weekly bath like some people. I had a roommate in college that took a weekly bath, and it was bad, folks. Uh, we we went to the Dean of Men and said, listen, can we throw him in the showers and scrub him down? And uh, the Dean of Men gave us permission to do that. But it was so bad, his socks would almost stand up in the corner. But, uh, Uh, She took a daily bath, not a weekly bath. As she was taking her daily bath, she heard some crying going on in the bulrushes. She went over, picked up this little baby boy and adopted him as her very own. She called him Moses. Do you know why she called him Moses? Because the word Moses means to draw out of the water. Now make no mistake about it, folks, Moses was groomed to be the next Pharaoh of the land. As a matter of fact, Acts 7 and verse 22, it says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. In other words, Moses, when he walked out the door on occasion, people would fall down and do obeisance to him. He wore the finest robes of his day. He rode in the finest chariots of his day. He had access to the finest private tutorage of his day. But there came a time in Moses' life when he had a decision to make. Am I going to waste my life in the palace of the king, or am I going to let my life count for God? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking tonight on this subject. What are you gonna do? with your life. There are three things that Moses had to decide upon. Each one starts with the letter R. Now, I wish I could take credit for this uh, outline, but God put it in the Bible. So what are you gonna do with your life? Three things he had to decide upon. Number one, his refusal. Will you notice, please, verse 24. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Look this way. Have you ever refused anything for the will of God? If you have not, then I say you're not in the will of God. In Exodus, Moses is looking out the window. He sees his Hebrew brothers under hard labor and bondage. They were bent over in the red-hot Egyptian sun, making bricks out of slime and mortar. The Egyptians would come along with their scorpion-like whips and crack them on the back. Well, Moses had all of that he could take. So he went down and he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Now, I am not saying it was a will of God for him to kill that Egyptian. Don't misunderstand, but I am saying this, from that time, he could never be Pharaoh over the land of Egypt. He was willing to refuse. How about you? Luke 9 and verse 23, if any man will come to me and take up his cross daily and follow me, if he cannot, he cannot be my disciple. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What does it mean to be crucified unto Christ? It means to die to your own will for the will of God. Galatians 6, 14, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, it says this, if any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does it mean that we're to hate our father and mother, etc.? In the Bible, terms of emotion are terms of comparison. Whenever God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Terms of emotion, terms of comparison. Now, that doesn't mean that tonight, before I go to bed, I am to wrap my arms around my wife, which I will, and give her a big smooch, which I will, and say, honey, I hate you. No! No, it it means I am to love the will of God so much more than I love my own will. Are you willing to refuse for the will of God? I'm never concerned about young people that'll come to me and say, Brother Comfort, I hope I find God's will for my life. Listen, I'm gonna make a statement. Anybody that wants to know the will of God will find it. Did you get that? John 7, 17, if any man willeth to do his will, he shall know. So in Psalm 40 in verse 8, there are two things you need to know the will of God. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. First of all, you need a delight or a desire to know the will of God. Secondly, you need to validate the will of God by the word of God. I remember we were coming in 1984, uh, home from Spain on a mission trip. And uh, one of the greatest missionaries of our day who is now in heaven, J.T. Lyons, said, Brother Comfort, you know how my wife and I got to Spain? He said, we had been in Liberia for 20 years and uh, I was a bush pilot. God had supplied an airplane. And uh, so I was coming home on furlough and came through Spain and God began to speak to my heart about going to Spain. And I said, Lord, that's not logical. I've been 20 years in Liberia. I had a hard time learning the language. I'm 58 years old and I don't think I can learn another language. But God kept speaking to his heart about Spain. Well, he went from church to church here in America on furlough. And all the time he was preaching about Liberia, his mind was going to Spain. One night he went to bed and he could not sleep. He tossed and turned. He got up and opened his Bible, get it, to Romans 15 and 24. You know what it says? Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come unto you. He closed his Bible, he said, That's it. He went to the bed and woke his wife up. He said, Honey, it's settled. The Bible validated the will of God. We're going to Spain. So you need a delight to do the will of God and it is and a Uh, validate it with the Word of God. Are you willing to refuse? I was preaching in 1977 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had just come back from our first mission field trip uh, to Kenya, Africa. It changed my life, folks. And ever since we had that, I came to the Brubakers and my family and I said, listen, we can reach more unsaved people by accident in a third world country in one night than we can reach in fundamental Baptist churches in three months in America. So for years until I started ambassador, I would go to the mission field with our team uh, at our own expense, six to eight weeks every year. And so I came back and I was so burdened to get people to go to Kenya, Africa. And I was preaching Albuquerque, and there was a man who was PhD in science. And uh, he was working in a chemical laboratory, already in 1977, making a six-figure salary. And God reached down and he said, Ralph Stewart, I don't want you wasting your life in a chemical laboratory. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He left his nets, went to Maranatha Baptist Bible College making $15,000 a year. From a six-figure salary to $15,000 a year. The last I heard, He is pastoring a church in Southern Illinois. He was willing to refuse the big salary and his own will for the will of God. 1978, I preached in Marshalltown, Iowa. God looked down in that meeting and he saw Bob Matney. He was superintendent of the public school system, a high paying, prestigious job. God reached down in that meeting and he said, Bob Matney, I want you in my service. So he left his nets, went to Newington, Connecticut, making half the salary he was making in Marshalltown, Iowa. I preached in that school where he was a principal. When I preached pastor, 47 young people came down the aisle and surrendered for full-time Christian service. Bob Batney got up with tears in his eyes. He said, kids, five years ago in a Ron Comfort meeting, I did the same thing you're doing today. He said, you know why I did it? If I spent my life in the public school, I could never see 47 young people surrender their life for full-time Christian service. I wanna ask you, are you willing to refuse your own will for the will of God? Number one, is refusal. Notice, please, number two, verse 25, his reproach. It says uh, in 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches and the treasures in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, a day after he had slain the Egyptian, he's looking out and he's seeing his Hebrew brothers fighting each other So he goes down and he breaks him up and he says, wait a minute, we're in this thing together. If we don't hang together, we're gonna hang separately. And you know what they said? They said, Big Shot, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? Who do you think you are? Hey, we saw what you did yesterday. You killed the Egyptian, you buried him in the sand. You're in big trouble with the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that, ladies and gentlemen, began a life of reproach that he was to experience until the last day he lived his life and he stood on Mount Nebo. He was willing to refuse, but there was a reproach. Are you willing to bear the reproach of Christ? I know some kids in Christian schools, they won't tell dirty jokes, but they won't rebuke anybody that tells a dirty joke. I know kids that won't play the rock music and the profane music, but they wouldn't rebuke anybody. They're not willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Philippians 1 and verse 29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He was willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Now get this, one month, one month after he led the children of Israel over the Red Sea, one month later, Exodus chapter 16. The whole nation murmured against him. In Numbers 14 and verse 22, it says that they reproached him ten times. Now, you'll find that statement several times in the Bible, ten times. And it means this, over and over and over and over again. And that was the reproach that he experienced. In Exodus chapter 17, they came to a place called Riphidim and there was no water for the people to drink. And so the Bible says they picked up stones and they started to stone Moses. What do you think Moses responded? You think he said, wait a minute, you're taking this out on me and all I'm doing is obeying God. If you don't like it, take it out on God, don't take it out on me. You think that was his response? You think he said, now, wait a minute, you want to stone me, step out here one by one, put them up, we'll see who's gonna stone whom. No, you know, I love his response. When they picked up stones to stone him, Exodus 17 and verse four says, and Moses cried unto the Lord saying, ladies and gentlemen, that was his place of refuge. I have in the front of my Bible four words, no attack, no defense. And I believe that that was Moses' attitude. God can vindicate me. God can defend me. I don't have to defend myself. No attack, no defense. I believe that when they picked up stones to stone Moses, the devil reached down in Moses' ear, and he said, Moses, you dumb fool. You could have been Pharaoh over the land of Egypt. You've led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They don't appreciate you. In every step of the way, they're murmuring against you. As far as I'm concerned, the saddest chapter in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, after 40 years of leading the children of Israel, God says, Moses, let's go up to Mount Nebo. So they stand on Mount Nebo and God says, Moses, look over there in the promised land. He said, you can see it, but your feet are not going to touch down at it in this life. Why? Don't you remember Moses, I told you to speak to the rock and you smote the rock, you disobeyed me, you forfeited the right to be in the Bible lands in this life. You know what I believe the devil said at that time? I believe he said, Moses, you're a dumb fool. Why, those people don't appreciate you, murmuring against you, reproaching you, and now you're God. That's some God you've got there. <laughs> Led the children, of Israel 40 years, and now he won't even let you enter the promised land. You know what I believe Moses said? I believe he said, Fa- uh, Satan, shut up. Shut up, why? It's better to suffer reproach in the will of God than to sit in the palace of the king outside of the will of God. Now listen to this, Tiger Woods entered the professional golf tour when it, uh, it was 1996. And since then he has made $1.4 billion, billion billion with a B. He spent 40, $54 million for a private jet. He has a yacht 155 feet long. He spent 25 million for. He bought 10 acres in Jupiter, Florida for 55 million. He takes his own furniture with him to the PGA events so he can feel comfortable. Are you listening? The best day that I have had in the will of God far is superior than the best day he has had with all of his toys. And it is better to suffer reproach in the will of God than to sit in the palace of the king outside of the will of God. The world can't understand that. They can't understand how in the midst of persecution, the child of God can still have the joy bells ringing in his soul. As a matter of fact, In Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, Peter, James, and John are taking in the Sanhedrin. And they say, you better shut up your mouth about this man, Jesus. If you don't, we're going to cut your body to rivets with the cat of nine tails. You know how they did that? They tied their hands to a ring. They tied their legs to a ring so they were spread eagle. They would take the leaded whip and beat him 13 times on the right side, 13 times in the center, 13 times on the left side. And they said, if you keep preaching about this man, Jesus, we'll cut your body to rivets. You know what they said, Acts 4 and verse 20? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Hey, go ahead and beat us. We're still gonna preach about Jesus. In Acts chapter five, this time they were not threatened. This time they were beaten 13 times on the right side, 13 times in the center, 13 times on the left side. You know what Acts 5.41 says? And they departed from the presence of the council, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. You know, the worst thing the Jews could do was to kill a Christian because the more they persecuted the Christians, the more they grew and multiplied. Acts chapter seven, Stephen is stoned. Acts chapter eight and verse four, they that were scattered whenever everywhere preaching the word. Acts chapter 12, James has his head cut off. But Acts chapter 12 and verse 24 says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And when they martyred a Christian, they'd say, man, these Christians really know how to die. They really know how to die. Do you know that every disciple that Jesus had died of Mark's death? Except John. John was boiled in hot, seething oil, and to the Isle of Patmos, where he died a slow, painful, agonizing death. James. The brother of our Lord, when he was 92 years of age, he was taken to prison, beaten with the, led it with the cat of nine tails, but on his way to his execution, he led his executioner to Christ. And they both went out and died a martyr's death together. Matthew was slain with a large knife. Mark was dragged to death by the people of Alexandria. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. They got ready to crucify Peter. You know what he said? He said, no, I'm not worthy to die the way the Son of God did. So at his own request, they crucified him upside down with his head pointing toward the ground. By the way, young people, do you know that's the origin of the so-called peace symbol or the broken cross? When Titus and his Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD, they carried the inverted or the broken cross. That's always been a symbol of anti-Christendom. I think about Paul. Pastor, no place I've ever been affected me as much as being in the Mamertine prison, except in the open tomb of Christ. Have you ever been in the Mamertine prison? You go in Rome and there's a stone floor. There's a grate, they would remove the grate, they'd throw the the prisoner down and he, on one side Paul was chained to a Roman soldier, on the other side to the cell. As he would lie there on the floor, he'd watch the rats as they gnawed away at his body. He would watch the lice as they crawled all over him. He wrote to Timothy in his dying days and he said, Timothy, it's cold down here, bring my coat. But you know what he said? Most of all, bring the parchments. You know what he was saying? He was saying, listen, I'll endure the cold. I'll endure the darkness and the dampness. If you've got to forget anything, forget my coat, but bring the word of God. And the guy told us just before they cut off the head of the apostle Paul, he led 37 of the guards to Jesus Christ. Think of that. And as they cut off his head, he was singing the praises of God. I think about Polycarp, the aged pastor of the church at Smyrna. When Polycarp was well in his nineties, he was taken to the proconsul, urged to renounce his faith in Christ and escape martyrdom. Polycarp came out with these famous words, 80 and six years have I served the Lord Christ. And he's never done me anything but good. How then? can I renounce my King and my Savior. They led this tottery old man out to nail him to the stake. And as they started to pound the in spikes, he said, no, no. He said, you don't have to nail me to the stake to secure my remaining in the fire. The same God that gave me grace to come to the fire will give me grace to remain in the fire without being nailed to the stake. That day they doused his body with pitch, they lit a match, and his body became a human torch. You know what Polycarp was heard praying in his dying moments? He was heard praying, I thank thee, O God, that thou hast preserved me until this moment and given me the opportunity of taking my place among the martyrs. Are you willing to suffer the reproach of Christ? When somebody on your job uses God's name in vain, do you have enough Christianity to say, you're cursing the best friend I have? Number one, his refusal. Number two, his reproach, why? Because here's the bottom line, his reward. Notice again, verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches and the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward, his reward. Matthew 5, 11, and 12. It says, whenever men are reviling you, he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Uh, the reward is threefold. Number one, there's a well done when we cross the finish line. Second Timothy 4, 6, ate. Paul said, I've now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me of that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So he had his eyes on the finish line. Every September the 14th, a week and a half ago, I put in my diary, thank you God, for another year of fruitful service. And my ultimate prayer is that when I cross the finish line, there'll be no moral blemishes on my life or my testimony. I went to Tom Farrell's funeral just a few months ago, 69 years old, no moral blemish on his character. I went up to Morgantown, West Virginia, my good friend, Benny Moran, 60 years in the ministry. He went out with no moral blemish on his body. And ladies and gentlemen, I tell our preacher boys this, whenever somebody gives you a compliment, let it go in one ear and out the other. If it stays in the middle, you're in trouble. But there is a compliment that I relish, and you know what that is? Brother Comfort, I heard you preach 50 years ago and you haven't changed. You know what I say when they say that? I say, listen, I'm too close to the finish line now to change. And I'm not looking at my yesterdays. I'm looking at my todays and my tomorrows and I want to cross that finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now here's an interesting thing. You know, I preached that Moses did not get to enter the Promised Land in this life. But come with me about 1600 years later, and Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Question, who did they see on the Mount of Transfiguration? They saw Moses and Elijah. You know why? I believe that God came to Moses and he said, Moses, he said, you led the children of Israel 40 years through the wilderness out of Egypt. And so I said, you couldn't enter the promised land in your lifetime, but well done, good and faithful servant. I'm gonna take you to the promised land with me now. So number one, there's the well done. Number two, there's the peace we have in our heart. John 14, 27, peace I live with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. John 16, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. So ladies and gentlemen, the only place of peace is in the will of God. Let me say this, I see a lot of you tonight with gray hair and many of you with no hair. But you know, God has a will for you Even if you're in the twilight of life, God has a will for you. A lot of people think only preachers have the will of God. No, God's got a will for every single person in this building. Are you willing to refuse your own will for the will of God? I was preaching three years ago in Blairsville, Georgia. I had preached in Atlanta, Georgia about 40 years ago and there was a young man who was a medical student at Georgia Tech. He came to me and he said, Brother Comfort, he said, somebody gave me your tape on the holiness of God. He said, I listened to it and I sat there with my mouth open. It was different than anything I'd ever heard. I caricatured God as a grandfatherly type. But he said, that night when I heard your tape on the holiness of God, I realized, what God was, what his nature was. And he said, after I played it through one time, I turned it over and I put it through the second time. And when it finished the second time, I was on my knees asking Jesus Christ to be my savior. Well, that was 40 years before I preached in Blairsville, Georgia. So I got through preaching in Sunday school and a man came into the pastor and he said, I wanna talk to Brother Comfort after the service. He said, I don't want to talk to him before he preaches. I don't want to get his mind off his preaching, but I want to talk to him after the service. So after the service was over, Dr. Will Moody, one of the finest surgeons in the state of Georgia, came down the aisle. He held out his hand. He said, I'm Dr. Will Moody. He said, do you remember about 40 years ago, you were preaching in Atlanta, Georgia, and a young man came to you and said he had been saved through listening to your tape on the holiness of God. He said, I was that young man. He reached in his pocket and he pulled out that tape. He said, here's that tape. I said, Dr. Moody, let me give you a CD. It's an updated version of that <laughs> message. He said, you don't have enough money to buy this tape. He said, I'll have this tape till I die. I said, Dr. Moody, can we get together this week? I'd like to hear the circumstances surrounding your salvation. He said, sure. On Tuesday, I had 11 surgeries. So Wednesday, we got together at a restaurant. I said, now, Dr. Moody, tell me about your uh, experience in salvation and what surrounded it. He said, well, I was in my frat house in Georgia Tech. He said, my frat brothers were in the next room smoking pot and drinking liquor. He said, but you know what I was doing? He said, I had my Bible open and I was praying, dear God, please send somebody along to tell me how to be saved. And he said, when I got up from my knees, there was a knock to the door. He said, I went to the door and there was a young man from a college ministry, Rich. He introduced himself. He had come around those guys smoking pot and drinking liquor and uh, so when he introduced himself, Dr. Moody said, you know, I just got off my knees and I was asking God to send somebody along to show me how to be saved. He said, can you show me how to be saved? He said, I surely can. he said, I'd like to give you a tape to listen to, and then I'll come back and uh, give you the plan of salvation. He didn't have to do that. Dr. Moody got saved after hearing it twice. And so I said, tell me about your family. He said, my wife's saved, my three children are in Christian colleges studying to serve the Lord. And he said, it's so wonderful to be saved. He said, I'm not living my life to make money. I'm living my life to serve God with my life. He said, now, I hope I do not offend you with this, but I'd like to give you an envelope. He gave me the envelope, and it had 16 $100 bills. It didn't offend me, preacher. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I spent that $1,600 a long time ago. But the joy of seeing Dr. Moody saved, his wife saved, his children serving God, there is not enough money in the world to buy the joy that I have and will take to my grave knowing that testimony. So young people, don't let the peer group fool you. They say, if you surrender for the will of God, God's going to make you miserable. I'll tell you who will make you miserable. The peer group will make you miserable. There is joy in serving Jesus. I've been in it 60 years, and there's never been a day when I've gotten up and looked in the mirror, and I've said, oh God, I'm so sorry you've called me to be an evangelist. I'm not enduring what I'm doing. Bless God, I'm enjoying it. And so number one, there's the well done. Number two, there's the peace we have in our heart. And finally, number three, in Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 30, Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. What are we going to get out of it? And Jesus said, Peter, you'll not only get in the life to come, life everlasting, but in this life, you'll get manifold more. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, it says, no man's left father, mother, house, land, etc., but what I'll multiply unto you a hundredfold. That's the third part of the reward. You know, I learned the start of that as a 15-year-old boy. I had sung in the nightclubs from the age of 7 to 15. Uh, on a Sunday night, instead of being in a church service like this, I was in a nightclub somewhere singing And I was always accompanied by my granddad or my dad because I was a minor. And so my brother got saved and I'll be talking about that on Tuesday night. He was a tremendous influence on me. He was responsible largely for my salvation. We had moved back from Asheville, North Carolina to Elmira, New York, my birthplace. And uh, Billy came home after being at Bob Jones for a semester. And he got me out on the street witnessing and winning people to Christ. We took the wordless book and we led children to Christ. And we had street meetings there in Elmira. And one day we were in a street meeting and Billy was preaching. And the police came and stopped us. He said, boys, you can't do that. He said, you've got to have a permit to do that. So you can't preach on this street corner until you get that permit. Well, across the street from where? we were having the street meeting was the Elmira Rescue Mission. Al Shaw, who had been a drunkard, and God saved him. And he got in the ministry in a rescue mission ministry. So he came over to us and he said, boys, he said, I've heard your preaching. He said, I like it. He said, that's the kind of preaching that I heard when I was born again. I used to be a terrible drunk and God saved me. He said, whereas the police will not let you preach on the street corner. He said, you can transfer to the rescue mission. He looked at my brother, Billy, and he said, Billy, I heard you preach, I like it. He said, I want you to preach three weeks in the rescue mission. And Ronnie, you do the singing, Billy, you do the preaching. Well, I came to my dad. And I said, dad, God saved me. He's called me to preach. And I said, if you'll let me go to Bob Jones Academy as a 10th grader, I'll start preparing to be a preacher. He said, son, you're a fool. He said, everything we've worked for all of your life is down the tube. I said, dad, that's in the past. I don't care about that anymore. God saved me, he's called me to preach. If you'll let me go, I'll go. He said, you can go, but I'll tell you what, if you go, I will not send you one penny. The three years I was in the academy, it cost the same as the university. My dad did not send me one penny. The four years I was in college, one day dad broke his word and sent me $5. In seven years, he sent me a total of $5. But I'll tell you how God began to multiply into me moms and dads. The last day of that three week meeting in the Elmira Rescue Mission, Al Shaw called me to the platform and he said, Ronnie, he said, uh, you're my Timothy, you're my son in the faith. And he said, the offerings for the three weeks have been $150. And he said, here is a check made out to you and I want you to enroll in Bob Jones Academy and begin to prepare to preach. God multiplied unto me a daddy. My first year at Bob Jones in the academy, I had a roommate, Billy Shelton, whose parents lived in Greenville. Billy lived in the dorm. I believe God put him in the dorm for my benefit. And so after several weeks of school, one day Billy came to me and he said, I've told my mom and dad about you and they'd like to meet you. Can you go home with me for supper one day this week? I said, Billy, I'd be glad to. And right away, God established a wonderful relationship with the Shelton's and they said, Ron, we want you to call us mom and dad Shelton. And as long as you're at Bob Jones, you will go to the mailbox on the weekend and find an envelope with some money in it to take care of your incidentals. And many times they sent me a check to apply to my room board and tuition. Again, God multiplied unto me a mom and dad. I graduated from the academy in 1957. Ed Shaw, one of my classmates said, Ron, how would you like to go out to Caldwell, Idaho and work this summer? He said, we can get you a job on construction and you can live in our house. I said, I'd be glad to, Ed. So I went out to Caldwell, Idaho. I was a hod carrier for a bricklayer. And after five weeks, the house we were working on was finished. And so I looked around Caldwell for work, couldn't find any. And somebody came to me and said, Ron, if you can get to Chicago, there are good jobs there that pay well, and you can earn money to go back to school in the fall. So I hitchhiked from Caldwell, Idaho to Chicago, Illinois. I stayed in the YMCA hotel for two weeks and I came within a hair of finding a job. I guess, I should say I came within a half an inch. I went to the railroad and they measured me. And they said, you're five feet five and a half. We have a policy that we do not hire anybody who is less than five feet six. I think I'm gonna sue them, but anyway. (laughs) The last day I was there in the YMCA hotel, I got a call from one of my classmates, Barb Bentley. Number one, I don't know how she knew to contact me at the YMCA hotel. Number two, I don't know how she knew I was looking for a job. She said, Ron, I understand you're looking for a job. She said, my dad is an electrician here in Buffalo, New York. And dad has said, if you'll come, and, and live in our house the rest of the summer. You can be his assistant and you can earn some money to go back to school. After being with the Bentleys a while, one day they came to me and they said, Ron, we have one daughter, Barb. We feel like now we've got another son. We feel like you're our son. And they said, Ron, if you have a need, don't hesitate to call on mom and dad Bentley. I went back to school in the fall. I had a basketball injury, a cartilage operation, and I was in the hospital getting behind on my work, and I got that dreaded letter from the business office. They said, Ron, we have kept you as long as we can without your being able to pay for your bill. We have no recourse unless your bill is paid by this date. We have to send you home. I didn't know where that was coming from. Before that day was over, I got a letter from the Bentleys. I opened the letter and it said, Ron, we love you. We think of you as our son. And God has laid on our heart to send you this check. Evidently, you need it. You know how much that check was for, ladies and gentlemen? The exact amount to the penny that I owed in the business office. Again, God multiplied under my mom and dad. After my freshman year in college, Fred Skeels, six feet four, 220 pounds came to me and he said, Ron, I'm from Oregon and my dad's in the lumber business and uh, if you would like to come to Oregon, we can get you a job and you can stay in our home. I did it for three summers and uh, Mom and Dad skills came to me and they said, we have two daughters, Kathy and Karen. We have one son, Freddie, and now we feel like we've got a little son, Ronnie. And they said, if you have a need, don't hesitate to call on us. Do you know when my girls were growing up, every Christmas we would get a letter from the skills at Christmas time with a check in it. And they would say, divide this check five ways three ways for our grandchildren, my daughters, two ways for our children, my wife and me. They sent us money to go from Clarksburg, West Virginia, to Oregon. Uh, They flew from Oregon to Phoenix, Oregon to Tampa, Florida to be with us. And if they were living, I believe with all my heart, I could call Dad Skills tomorrow and say, Dad, I'm in a a real difficult situation. I need to borrow $10,000. I believe a check for $10,000 would be in the mail the next day. You know why? The first Christmas I was home after being at Bob Jones for three months as a sophomore in high school, I went back to Elmire, New York. And it was crazy. Christmas time, the snow was two to three feet deep. And uh, we heated our house with oil. Mom and dad, nine out of 10 days were drunk. Nine out of 10 days. The last night I was home was the longest night of my life. Mom and dad didn't come home all night long. I sat in a rocking chair covered up with covers And I could see my breath, it was so cold, the oil had run out of the stove. And as I sat there, I sat there weeping. Nine out of 10 days, my mom and dad had been drunk. The last night I was home, mom and dad didn't even come home to be with me. So I waited around the last morning. And I thought, I want to wait until mom and dad come home. I want them to come home and hug me and kiss me and tell me they love me. But 10 o'clock in the morning, they still had not come home. So I went out to the highway and I put out my thumb. Tears were coming down my face. Nine out of 10 days, my parents were drunk. Last night I was home, they didn't come home to be with me. The last morning, they didn't come home to tell me they loved me. But you listen to me, God Almighty has made that up to me hundreds of times in these years I've been saved. And he said, if you're willing to leave it all, I'll multiply unto you a hundredfold. Some of you tonight are like the poet struggling with the will of God. I said, "Let me walk in the fields." He said, "No, walk in the town." I said, "But there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the sky is dark and there's nothing but noise and din. He wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said, there's sin. I said, but I'll miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He said, choose today whether I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? Twill not seem so hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I took one look at the fields, then cast my face toward the town. He said, my child, will you yield? Will you give up the flowers for the crown? Then into my hand went his, and into my heart came he. And now I walk in the light divine, the path I had feared to see. I want to close by reading this. Now I want to challenge you parents and you grandparents. Would you pray not only would you surrender your own life to the will of God, but would you pray for your children or your grandchildren to surrender their life for the will of God? I received this letter a couple of years ago, an email from a young man who's a student at Pensacola Christian College. He said around 40 years ago, you preached a message at Franklin Road Baptist Church about praying for your kids to be in the ministry. At the end of the sermon, you said to the congregation to stand up if they would commit to praying every day for their kids to be in the ministry. Well, my grandparents Stan and Mary Williams stood up and committed to pray every day for their kids to be in the ministry. Long story short, their son and daughter were both called into the ministry and still are in the ministry today. My Aunt Melissa went to Bible college and married a guy named Bruce Barker. They have now been in the ministry for over 25 years. My dad, Jonathan Williams, also went to Bible college and married Angela Rice. We have been in the ministry for over 22 years. He says this, But had you not preached what you did at Franklin Road Baptist Church about praying for your kids to be in the ministry, my grandparents probably would not have committed that and my life would be totally different. Now, I'm going to end this service tonight by asking this. Are you willing to say, Lord, Will you put my children in the ministry? You say, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that we ought to force our kids in the ministry? No, I'm saying that we ought to obey the command of Matthew 9:37. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he'd send forth labors into his harvest. That's powerheads in prayer.